Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast, and this is episode 124. And today, I am super pleased to welcome back Professor Neil Walsh. Hey, Neil, how are you doing? Hello, Lauren, how are you? Very good. We're both good. This is, I'm excited about today's chat for many, many, many reasons. And as we were just discussing offline, the last time we did this was shockingly back in April 2016. Oh my. Um, we've, uh, that was episode 80. And it's not going to be an entirely different chat um, where back then we were talking about athlete immune health. Um, today we're going to talk about nutrition and the athlete immune health. We're going to maybe think about some of the uh, some of the old perspectives, but focus primarily on the new perspectives on what you've described in your uh, recent sport nutri- uh, sport nutrition sports medicine paper, 2019, which I'll link to um, paper and you know the whole sort of uh, perspective on an old paradigm. Now. Just in case people don't know who you are, give us uh, give us a quick uh, overview about you, your background. I know you've mo- you've moved around a bit. A lot's happened since we last spoke in 2016. <laughs> so if you want to bring us up to speed, and then uh, and then I'll take it from there. No problem. Yeah. So so Neil Walsh, I'm I'm a professor now of exercise immunology at Liverpool John Moores University. I've just moved in the last couple of months from Bangor University, where I was for 19 years. Um, so it's a brand new beginning. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, my team's very interested in the influence of exercise and stress and nutrition uh, on immunity in athletes and soldiers. And, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a common thing to all of those different areas that you're working in. They're all human beings. And I love, I love discussing this when, you know, we, 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 use, we, we use terms to describe our our clientele if you like as athletes but ultimately they're still all human beings and i feel that you know when we talk about sports nutrition that's the my my focus here or sports science we tend to talk about them from a rather sort of scientific perspective without understanding well not necessarily understanding but without maybe allowing the sort of the human side of our subject to be an important factor here so that's why i was like to say you know they're not just athletes they're human beings and like all human beings they get sick they get ill um they might get injured and they need to recover from those injuries and that's why this particular topic is perhaps one of if not my favorite one as it relates to where i see the powerful and important and exciting role for a performance nutrition in practice but also for the uh, constantly evolving uh, field of sports nutrition science and, and the research that's going in, you know, feeding into that, that allows practitioners like myself, for example, to play what I see as that primary role of keeping our athletes healthy. Um, you know, the first and foremost focus is not about training adaptations or getting them bigger, faster, stronger, or leaner. Body composition is always a, you know, a big focus, but it's actually about keeping them healthy. So, you know, we talked about this a few years back. Um, you know, have things changed much since then? Um, why, why, why did you feel the need to, to write this, this, what I have to say is excellent um, new review, but what led to the coming together of this new paper? Yeah, so it's it, much has changed, certainly in the way that I view this topic in the last couple of years, in the process of preparing this review. We, we used to think that the immune weaponry that the athlete has, uh, which we term resistance, is zapped by heavy exercise and training. So we used to think that, that athletes might be more susceptible to picking up opportunistic infections because their immune system was lowered by the heavy training they do. But we were never convinced that the immune system was clinically lowered, as in what we might call suppressed. Suppression is a word we use a little too often. And and, and this has always been an issue for me. I'd always been wondering about this. And, And we spent many, many years doing many studies, giving, for example, nutritional supplements that might support immune resistance in athletes. Now, these supplements work very, very well 
in sick individuals, in the elderly, in individuals who are immune suppressed, uh, post-surgery, for example. But I suppose we just kept going. We, we kept giving one the next supplement, the, the, you know, the next big thing, hoping that this would reduce the incidence or the severity and duration of infections. And I suppose we were a little disappointed over maybe 10, 15 years of research. But we always had this question in the back of our minds. Is the athlete immune system really lowered? You can see that in the hours after exercise, many immune measures change and, and a good number of them do decrease in the hours after exercise in line with what we used to call an open window theory, whereby in the hours after a heavy you know, marathon, for example, you might be more inclined to pick up an infection. But when you look at the recovery of the immune system, most of these immune functions are quite normal within a number of hours after exercise. And you, you alluded to this at the beginning of the call when you said that, you know, these are individuals, these are human beings. And if you take uh, immune measurements after a day or two of rest in a high level athlete, the immune system looks very, very similar to somebody who isn't a high level athlete. So this had troubled me for a number of years and, and the lack of success of sports supplements, for example, to improve infectious outcomes in athletes had troubled me. And it was a, a, a couple of years ago that I stumbled on some work from uh, ecological Im immunology in insects, which is now becoming more mainstream in human immunology, where they're now starting to recognize that the microbe is also important in this, that the pathogen, if you like, the nasty is also important in this relationship. The immune system isn't just programmed to attack, attack, attack. Um, that would be not very good for your own body's tissues and, and it would have a high energy cost on your body. So they talk about this term tolerance. And, and in this context of this paper, tolerance is really about not, it's not about the killing, that's resistance. It's about tolerating a pathogen and keeping it at a, a non-damaging level. It's about homeostasis. And then when you look through this new lens at the exercise immunology literature, it, 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 was a, it was a big moment for me because it all of a sudden made sense. If you think of tolerance, it's, it's, it's about blunting the immune system's response. When you're sick with a common cold, you have a runny nose, you'll be sneezing. These are inflammatory responses driven by the immune machinery that causes this inflammation to help the killing process, etc. But tolerance is about almost blunting that overly exuberant response. And so with a model of resistance and tolerance and balance, you can actually see if resistance isn't suppressed in athletes, that maybe things we could do to improve tolerance. You know, probiotics are an example. They're tolerogenic, um, improving gut bacteria or other anti-inflammatories, etc. The evidence for those is actually quite good. In, in athletes, and we might not expect an effect on incidents. What we might expect an effect on is reducing the severity and the duration of an illness episode when the athlete gets sick. I've said a lot there, Lauren, so you must keep You in. did. My head just exploded, to be honest. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to replace myself with this, this cutout, automated cutout. Okay. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to explore a lot of that. And uh, yes. I absolutely lo love the way that you flipped this around and it fits very well with the way I like to look at things from the perspective of we need to contextualize what we're looking at. And also just to cast back to a previous podcast where we had your colleague, Professor Graham Close on where we talked about um, his paper to podium uh, publication and that as an incredibly useful tool to help determine the translational potential of, of what we're looking at. And here is, I mean, you know, anyone that listens to my podcast, I've been going on about this stuff for years. There's so much to this that, that makes it, I can see how hard this is to interpret that information and then try and apply it into, into practice. So why don't we to set the stage a bit, I, I like to start these conversations with a few definitions and, and so on, but um, you started that paper with a lovely uh, quote from Hippocrates, which was, if we could give every individual the right amount of nourishment and exercise, not too little and not too much, we would have found the safest way to health. And I love that because basically we, we can go job done. We don't, you know, we can just move on because that's basically correct. Obviously the problem there is, is we're, 
it's how do we determine what, what is actually the right amount of nourishment? What is the right amount of exercise? And what do we mean by not too little, and not too much? And, and, and what do we mean by safest as well? And that, again, that's why I love your whole tolerance and resistance conversation. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because on the one hand, there's a danger in oversimplifying stuff, but also in the science side of things, we also get we, we, we have a propensity to overcomplicate or at least sterilize what we're doing for the purposes of conducting research. But the, you know, the thing that, that stands out a lot there is, is what's happening in the lab is not necessarily what's happening in the real world. So with all that said, maybe let's, let's just quickly start off by what do we even mean by athlete? My guests always i think it's an important thing to start off with as to differentiate that from a, a, a person an average person but also we're talking about health and what do you mean by by health as it relates you know in the context of a of an athlete well from our perspective you know we're interested in um keeping the athlete training and competing uh, and so health, I suppose, in this context is the absence of illness, mm. um, uh, training availability, because we know, for example, that after injury, illness and infection is the second most common reason for an athlete to present to a team medic. So this is, you know, this is a, a serious problem and, and we can gain extra days of training availability by shortening even bouts of, of infections. So health here is really about keeping the athlete training and, and competing, Lauren. And, you know, we, we talk about, well, okay, let, I don't want to repeat too many either previous podcasts or conversations, even such as we have here, but let's just quickly talk about the sorts of things that, that makes an athlete rather interesting um, to differentiate from an average person. Because of course, the very nature of training stress is that there is a, a requirement for that stress to be sufficient enough to bring about adaptations that makes them bigger, faster, stronger. But that's where there can be some issues, isn't there? I, I, we'll talk about nutrition, we'll talk about things like sleep and so on. But, but the fact that these athletes are all undergoing some degree of training stress, what's the relevance of that to this? Yeah, I, I think we need a more holistic uh, approach to this. In our field, in, in exercise immunology, one of the problems is we have been overly focused on the physical stress of exercise. So for many years, we, we've been trying to say, I suppose, that the, the more physical stress with acute bouts or repeated bouts of exercise, the lower the immune response. And, and, and that's true to some extent. But what we have forgotten in there is that if you go back to Cellier's original concept of stress in the 30s and the way in which the HPA axis and stress hormone responses, et cetera, et cetera allow us to deal with this stress to maintain homeostasis. You know, he didn't look at just sort of physical stress. He looked at psychological stress too and anxiety and sleep as well. So I think in my uh, 2018 paper, the recommendations paper, I certainly tried to present that this, this, is, this is beyond just the physical stress of exercise. Athletes have high levels of psychological stress associated with you know, team selection, for example, competition. They have sleep stress you know, associated with long haul travel and worry and rumination and, and, and so forth, in addition to the physical stress. And then, of course, there's the interest here in nutrition. You know, they might be making weight for competition. And, and on an, a low energy availability. So I think we've, we've been a bit single-minded. We, we've kind of wanted to big up, if you like, what it is we do. And as, and as exercise scientists, we've probably wanted to think, yeah, it's the exercise here. It's the exercise that might make athletes more prone to infection. And we're now revisiting that and, 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 and having a much more multifaceted approach to what, what we do, Lauren. So how... How, bearing in mind that, and, and again, I'm thinking about the evidence that exists, you know, the body of knowledge that we have on this topic, which most of it, as it relates to health, comes from the more medical side of things, doesn't it? 
the, the, the evidence that does exist within sport and exercise science um, is obviously a lot less. And, you know, then one questions, well, what about the quality and the rele relevance of that information? Um, quickly sort of give us an idea of where we're at in terms of the body of, of knowledge that underpins this, this topic. Oh my, yeah. So it, it all stems, this, this top there, it, it, it was really interesting in preparing for this podcast. You know, there are over 4,900 papers now, Lauren, if you wow. search the terms exercise and immune on web of science, you know, this has been a rapidly expanding discipline, exercise immunology as we know it. And, it, and for me, it all started in the very early eighties where, uh, Tomasi's group worked, they worked with cross country skiers and uh, he was a very good immunologist uh, in New York, if I remember rightly. And, and they did some work with cross country skiers where they showed that cross country skiers under very heavy training had lower levels of saliva IgA, uh, important antimicrobial protein in the oral cavity. And not only do they have lower levels at rest during high training, but after a cross country ski race, they were further lowered. So he, he suggested that there was an influence of their training status versus non-athletic controls and also an acute effect of heavy exercise. And it was around that time that papers were published showing that after a marathon, you might suffer, uh, more likely suffer symptoms of upper respiratory tract infection. And, and then there was an enormous amount of excitement that, oh, wow, maybe the increase in infectious symptoms in these marathon runners is because of this drop off in immune function. And then this, this sub-discipline of exercise science was formed, exercise immunology. But it wasn't until the mid-noughties, if you like, that, that papers started to come out. I'm thinking Ekblom's paper in 2006, uh, Stockholm Marathon, where they actually didn't show an increase in infectious symptoms um, after the marathon. And what they alluded to was that, uh, as you might expect, you need to measure symptoms of infection before the race as well. And when you do that and you control for that, you actually see that those people who had some symptoms before the race were more likely to have symptoms after the race. Um, this isn't to dispel this whole topic and say that, you know, exercise doesn't lower the immune system. As I mentioned earlier, you know, if you do about a very heavy exercise, yes, in the few hours after exercise, immune cells are trafficking out to the tissues from the blood, etc. So if you take blood samples, you will see, for example, that, that you know, many measures of the immune system are lowered. Um, but are they lowered to the level required to increase infections? Actually, the really sad thing alluding to the quality of the science in our field is that there aren't really studies that really get at that. I mean, the best way of answering this question, I'm sure we'd have mentioned this in our old podcast, is to quarantine individuals who are on high exercise versus those who are not. And then you, you, you kind of provide up the nasal cavity, one of the common cold viruses, and you quarantine these individuals and you see who gets sick. But getting the ethical permission and the funding, <laughs> the funding to do this work, I mean, these yeah. studies cost millions of pounds to do these types of studies with the appropriate end. So we've kind of lowered the bar, and I, I imagine you're getting at this because this is a problem for sports exactly science. We, we've lowered the bar, Lauren, in terms of the, the level of evidence that we think is suitable to convince somebody that this is really happening. And, and so the next level of evidence below the, 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 the live common cold virus is to use vaccinations and look at the response to vaccinations, or as we've done, to use skin immune challenges that require the immune system to respond to a challenge. It's more like an infection, if you like. But actually, Lauren, there aren't many studies that have even used in vivo immune challenges. Most studies have gone to the next level of evidence below that, whereby they've, say, taken a blood sample and made some clever immune measurements, or they've assessed the level of IgA in saliva. Mm -hmm. And th those are you know, they're going to correlate maybe a little bit with resistance to infection. Uh, IGA comes to mind. It does have some predictive power. But does this allow us to definitively answer the question, does heavy exercise and training lower the immune system sufficiently to, to increase opportunistic infections? 
I'm not sure we're there, actually, Lauren. That's a long-winded yeah. answer, but that's no, no, kind of that's, 25 years, I think, in there. That's exactly <laughs> it, because, you know, again, a, a, a message or a theme that I constantly repeat without, you know, I, res I reserve the right to constantly keep saying this, is that, that, that we, you know, we've got to be very careful about looking at all this information and going, right, that's what the science says. It's, therefore, it's fact. And this is what I'm going to do with my, my athlete. But of course, you know, going back to that, that, that sort of idea of, is it good or bad or poor quality science is one question, but whether or not it's relevant and or applicable to the particular situation at hand is another. And what underpins a lot of that is firstly, someone's ability to actually differentiate what this stuff is which of course is why a, a, a certain level of, of uh, or a decent level of education is required and which is why we have these types of conversations beyond that basic level and and we're by no means there obviously um i mean as i look back at one of the charts figure one in your 2018 paper where you you summarize you know the the the, the key factors that can lower immunity in the athletes and and as i'm looking at this chart and thinking about the various scenarios that i find myself in when i'm traveling with my athletes and teams you know you've got here lowered, lowered immunity in the center and you've got factors such as heavy exercise yes they all go through that nutritional deficits um athletes uh, particularly like football players for example aren't well known to be people who who, who eat the uh, the highest quality of diet but particularly when you're traveling that's even harder uh, long haul travel itself has has issues, environmental extremes, uh, even my podcast or two ago with Trent Stellingworth about altitude uh, and that and its impact was fascinating. And that's something that that, you know, we, we don't compete um, all at the same sort of, you know, comfy place at sea level. There are all sorts of alternatives and hot and cold and and so on. Sleep disruption. That's a huge issue. I know we've talked a lot about that in the past and obviously the the thing that that you mentioned which is life stress of course brings us back to the fact that they're not just athletes they are human beings with all the same crap that everyone has to deal with in life and uh, and and so on so the, the reason why i'm mentioning this is because these are all factors that complicate research obviously and therefore our understanding of of what's being learned and you know assumed through that research relative to the greater complexity of of what you refer to as a sort of the holistic sort of burden of of these factors what let's just quickly talk about that and then we'll move into um some of the key things i want to discuss on this podcast but but why why was it so necessary for you to to point that out um, and, and why should we keep that in mind at all times? Yeah, well, we should, I think, because we, we've been quite one dimensional in, in the past. If you're talking about sort of the figure one in that mm. 2018 recommendations paper, you know, one of the things that really struck me is we published some work in 2018 showing that the level of stress you have, psychological stress and anxiety before exercise can predict how the immune system responds to a standard bout of exercise. And when we were writing that paper, we were really surprised that there was only a small handful of studies that had actually even taken account of anxiety and psychological stress when they'd been looking at immune responses to exercise. And you would think that as a group of scientists who understand the factors that influence immunity, via the HPA axis, you know, psychological stress, um, exercise, heat, cold, you know, you think that we would control or at least report that the, in our groups, it might be, I don't know, a nutritional supplement, the carbohydrate group, the placebo group, that the levels of stress and anxiety they were under when they came to the lab was similar, but actually we were shocked um, and, and we were at fault ourselves because we'd, we'd also published many studies on exercise and immunity without even reporting perceived stress or anxiety. I mean, you've got the white coat response when your participants come to the lab. You know, how familiarized are, are, are the individuals? And, and this comes back to your point about, you, you know, it's, it's the, the paper to podium thing again, isn't it? It's translating the, the science from the lab 
to the field. And this is particularly a problem for exercise immunology because, as I said, because of the, the way in which the HPA uh, SAM axis, um, you know, helps us reach homeostasis through these stress hormones, uh, cortisol, norepinephrine and so on. They have direct effects on the immune system. So we must control for all these other factors in that figure one. Um, you, you know, before we can then isolate out any effects of exercise. And then you probably would ask the question, well, why would you want to isolate out those factors? Because they're experienced in like a, you know, in a more holistic fashion. It's, it is a problem. Uh, it is a problem, Lauren. And, and I think we have to make more than just the measurements of physical strain in our studies. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Obviously makes it a way more complicated study, isn't it? <laughs> but the, the reason why I'm banging on about this is, is because for example, like in my own, in my own practice, I am working primarily with elite athletes and by elite athletes, I mean, literally elite athletes. So it makes a very big difference if I, if I don't use the right information for the right reasons. And, 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 and there's a lot of, there's a lot behind that, but ultimately, you know, very small things make a difference in that population. But also, you, you, if you are wasting that person's time, or worse still, getting them to do things that actually has some sort of negative impact, albeit it's going to be, if it's nutrition, it's probably a safe thing that you're getting them to do, you know, so you may not be concerned about it. But you absolutely need to know whether or not this is worth doing. And by worth doing, you know, it brings up the, 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 the sort of the term confidence, doesn't it? How confident are we in the value of what we're doing because these athletes have a lot of things going on and i've talked about this in the past is that one thing that 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 separates a competent practitioner from a, a master of their art is not just knowing what to do but actually it's learning when not to do something and i find myself in that position when we talk about nutrition i mean every year there's more tools in the toolbox for us to play with and obviously, we'll get to supplements, which is one of the most obvious things that ends up in people's toolboxes, their proverbial toolbox. Um, and there is this, this, this thing that we feel the need to get people to do everything. So whether or not there's suddenly all this science about training low, um, ice baths, a particular supplement, whatever, we go, right, this is cool. The science is exciting. Let's just get them to do that. And we're not truly considering how actually relevant is this, particularly for the context at hand um so let's just quickly talk about infections and you know what sort of a problem do they actually pose to the athlete why is you know there's different kinds of infections um you know let's just, just let's just explore that a little bit yeah I, I as i mentioned earlier on you know this is the second highest reason for an athlete to report to a team medic is infection these are typically infections of the respiratory tract, such as you know, we're talking common cold, uh, influenza viruses, of which there are many. Um, this could also be gastrointestinal infection as well. And, you, you know, you, the average cold, you know, maybe somewhere between four and seven days, but these can become protracted. Um, there can be problems if the athlete exercises hard during an infection. Uh, that can protract the course of an infection for sure and even lead to as we talk about in the new paper, medical emergencies. Um, so, you know, we, we've always used the below the neck rule. So we always say, you know, don't train with below the neck symptoms. But how many athletes really listen to that? Mm. Um, so, you know, and, and sickness, of course, correlates negatively with training volume. You know, the less sick you are, the more you can train. And there's good evidence now that that might relate well to medals at major competitions. And it all makes sense, doesn't it? You know, the, these infections typically, even if they're quite subtle, they reduce training quality for sure. Um, so, so yeah, but I mean, one of the other problems in terms of the quality of evidence again in our field is that we mostly record symptoms using a health log. Mm. You can do this on a phone app or on obviously using a common cold questionnaire, but sometimes those are not validated questionnaires. And also what we'd really like to do, Lauren, if we could, was to actually take swabs from the oral nasal cavity and then to perform the pathology 
uh, and see if the individuals really are suffering from a respiratory infection or if this might be something else i don't know allergy for example um or, or or it might just be that they're exercising first thing in the morning in very cold conditions outside and that this causes you, you know some nasal discomfort and, and symptoms so we don't even know very well whether the symptoms we see are true infections although you could argue that actually it doesn't really matter if they feel unwell this is going to probably have an impact on on their training and, and competitions um, for sure yeah yeah you see i that's a really interesting point that you raise is you know is the qualitative side of this um it's highly subjective from both the researcher and the participant's perspective but in the field you know in practice it's equally impactful because decisions are made on the basis of the perception of the seriousness or the type of the problem at hand, doesn't it? So we, I think this is interesting, like, like particularly in male team sports, I don't have any experience of working with female teams, so I wouldn't know if this is the same, but you know, you, you do get that business of particularly with like British athletes, for example, where, you know, we still got that, that remnants of the stiff upper lip, you know, like we don't, you know, we don't want to be sissies and go, oh, I've got a bit of a cold. Oh, poor you. You know, then you get a lot of ribbing from all the other players because you've got a bit of sniffles. Um, but on the other hand, that could have some sort of an impact. Do you feel that just from a practical perspective is maybe we need to start understanding symptomology better and, and try and, you know, have a better handle on the risk? Because clearly that would then play a role in in us prioritizing remember what i said about differentiating relevant from irrelevant maybe this becomes top of the list you know how do we how do we do that or or, or do we need to say right that's for the team doctor but of course in many scenarios in sports particularly with individual athletes you don't even have a doctor at hand so this is a tricky one yeah i mean i i think for, for example we, we need to better understand the symptoms that might relate to allergy and, and then, of course, you need appropriate diagnosis and treatment. Likewise, for symptoms, you know, bronchoconstriction, uh, asthma, which appears to be quite common in these high-level athletes. So I think, yes, you're absolutely right. We need better screening and better treatment for those, you know, uh, for example, allergy and asthma come, come to mind. And studies have shown that a proportion of symptoms of respiratory infections can be put down to allergy. But I must add that those studies that show that only about a third of all infectious reports in athletes are true infection, um, we need to be very careful interpreting those because the couple that are highly cited were actually performed in December in Australia, which is the summer, when you would expect um, a higher incidence of allergy in infectious reports in, in athletes. When we've done studies in the autumn winter, and there's a new paper in British Journal of Sports Medicine on this too, if you take swabs from athletes reporting common colds in the autumn winter, no surprise, you see that a greater percentage of those are actually truly respiratory infections. So we need to take season into account too, but I agree very much we need to screen better and treat better uh, for sure so most of my listeners are primarily interested in in nutrition um and, and you know people go my god we took a long time to get to the nutrition conversation but obviously what we've talked about is extremely important um just by way of understanding this whole situation the quality of the evidence all the different things that affect, you know, that we've just talked about that you've covered in great detail in your two, 2018 paper and, and which we largely covered in our 2016 podcast where we did look at things like life stress and sleep and, and so on. But, but nutrition, um, it, it, you know, does clearly have a role to play. And I guess the first thing that we need to look at is, is in what way does nutrition influence immunity and infection um and and what you know there's lots of little areas that can have some benefit but profoundly um where do you see um you know the biggest impact as it relates to you know the the the, the, the athlete and their eating habits and how that can affect their um their immune system yeah i i think that there's been great interest in this topic 
sparked by some work from the Australian Institute of Sport recently, <coughs> showing that low energy availability in females uh, increases the risk of upper respiratory tract symptoms. And we've known for a long, long time now that you know, you need appropriate energy availability for the immune system. You need appropriate delivery of macronutrients. Your know, protein comes to mind for protein synthesis. You know, the immune cells, you know, some of them produce antibodies. Okay, so there's a, an increased protein requirement and protein seems to be crucial. Of course, we know, for example, that micronutrients, you know, support antioxidant defense. Uh, DNA, RNA synthesis, etc. So we need a good, adequate supply of, of macronutrients, not just for fuel and energy, but for processes, important processes like for cell proliferation, protein synthesis, etc. So I, you know, this is a topic I'm really interested in. Um, the whole, you know, concept of energy availability, the highly increased risk of relative energy deficiency that um the athletes uh, particularly elite athletes and not just females which is where the original interest you know in this went but with discussions i've had on this with people like again another one of your colleagues james morton professor james morton we've talked about this trent stanningworth just recently but um uh kirsty elliott cell we've we've done uh, an entire podcast on this and and covered it in other related podcasts so you know there, there, it's not like we haven't talked about this but let, let's and with mike gleason as well when we talked about Im immune health and we also talked about carbohydrates which we'll, we'll also cover in a minute but you know this is where i feel it's interesting as it relates to differentiating normal quotes unquote people from athletes because energy availability is not really an issue with normal people in fact it's it's sort of you know energy excess tends to be the problem with them and that of course is the scenario in which a lot of people exist and of course where we live in our day-to-day -day life someone gets sick and ill you know we go right take a pill take a supplement whatever we're not really thinking about are they eating enough um could you just take us a bit more down this path of energy availability and, and energy deficiency and why how and why that actually impacts immunity um, um uh, 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 yeah let's just get into that yeah i we have believed for many years again alongside the belief that exercise suppresses the immune system we, we've kind of banded around this idea that the energy deficiency in athletes might be suppressing the immune system and I suppose this new paper in sports medicine that I've published is challenging that belief. And I, and I think there's good grounds to challenge it. I mean, the work that I start off with talking about Leighton's famous work with the prisoners of war, um, you know, where, where, they, where the, the Red Cross supplement improved protection against tuberculosis in the British prisoners of war, but not in the Russian prisoners. And they were surviving on very, very low energy availability and doing 12 hours of hard labour a day in these POW camps. You know, the, 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 we've known about the influence from papers like that of extremely low energy availability, extremely low deficits for 70, 80 years or more. Um, my belief, having reviewed the work here for this paper, and it might be quite contentious, is that there, I give three reasons why I don't believe low energy availability, for example, in females, uh, accounts for an increase in, in, in infection incidence and reduces the immune system. These are otherwise healthy athletes, okay, that are training hard and competing, uh, etc. And And the evidence follows that if you look first at anorexia nervosa, so you, you see protection against respiratory infection. It's paradoxical. And the story gets complicated because anorexia nervosa patients not only appear to be protected against the common cold, they report very few, but they tend to report them when they're refed. And only now recent work, I know that Andrew Wang's group uh, published in Cell in 16 and, and since then, they've shown that different viral or bacterial pathogens have very different metabolic requirements for glucose and other macronutrients that could explain the starver fever, feeder cold. And in anorexia patients, it's only when they're in the advanced stages 
they're hospitalized now with BMIs below 15, that you tend to see reductions in cell mediated immunity. And really advanced stages when you see reductions in humoral immunity, I mean, talking about production of antibodies and so on. And this stress hormone that's got a bad rap, cortisol, that we talked about for many years, oh, cortisol, it suppresses the immune system. You know, it's a little more nuanced than that, Lauren. You know, you need a bit of cortisol in short term stress to actually mount a good immune response. And cortisol only tends to increase in complete fasting. So the evidence from anorexia nervosa is it doesn't really support that elite athletes who have low energy availability um, would have a lowered immune function. And the same is it can be said with protein energy malnutrition, Kwashiorkor. I talk about that in the paper too, and the evidence from Kwashiorkor is instructive here, because again, immunity is well preserved in patients with severe Kwashiorkor, so severe protein energy malnutrition. And you, you, the, the mice and rat studies tend to show that protein is the critical macronutrient. If you have mice uh, on isocaloric deficit diets, but w one mice has more protein, you see that the protein provides the support. So if you take that to the next level of evidence and you look at uh, Trent Stellingworth's paper, for example, that I use in the recent paper, I know I've discussed this with Trent too, you know, he looked at um, female athletes who had low energy availability. They typically use the LEAF questionnaire to determine that. And when you look carefully at the table in the Hakura paper, the recent one, um, uh, in IGSNEM, you see that the protein intakes in these female athletes, um, some of them were uh, even amenorrheic, um, albeit their body mass indexes were still about 19. So nothing like the anorexia patients, you know, at less than 15 who start to see reductions in immunity. When you look at these female athletes who have low energy availability, actually their protein intakes are above two grams per kilogram body mass. So they're above even the, the, the recommendations for, for athletes. So I, I and then you look back at the studies from the AIS, excellent studies that they are. They also show that psychological stress, anxiety and depression also predicted the respiratory infection in those athletes. So I wonder, and they rightly allude to this in their nice papers, the AIS group, that there's some sort of overlap here and that maybe, maybe we are almost bigging up, if you like, the role that energy deficit might have in maintaining immunity in high-level athletes who are otherwise healthy. Um, so. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think ultimately an issue we've got is it's not that people are right or wrong. It's just been oversimplified. So with that goes a whole truckload of oversimplifications. You know, what are we, what are we talking about when we talk about energy deficiency? And energy deficiency in someone who's also got a very poor quality diet, um, all those holistic stresses that you're talking about is a different scenario than someone who is technically in an energy deficiency, possibly a strategic energy deficiency, let's say to make weight or bring about you know, uh, body composition changes or it's during an intense training period, but they are compensating by, um, you know, uh, uh, nutritional strategies that we'll talk about in a minute you know certain they're not malnourished diet. basically exactly so I, there's a big difference there yeah um so i want to i want to explore that but before i do i just want to go back to because i think it's relevant to what we're going to talk about in a minute and that is this 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 thing that you talked about before about resistance and tolerance um, let's just bring ourselves back to that. Um, you, you know, for example, to refer back to that chart, which is worthy of being a poster on my office uh, wall, actually, is, <laughs> it, it is, is this concept between resistance and tolerance where you describe, you know, obviously there's homeostasis and the various sort of mechanisms behind that. But then there's also the sort of the more, the more nuanced areas of the, the strength and weakness of, of the responses, which will obviously vary from people to people. And also the, the sort of the influence that, that we can have with that as, as performance nutritionists um, is where I, I think that uh, we should spend a bit of time on. So um, let's just quickly go back into that, Neil, if you can, please. Yeah, so I, I think classically, 
what we've focused on is the immune weaponry. Many of the measurements we, we make in our labs, and this isn't just exercise immunologists, this is human Im immunology more broadly. Many of the measurements focus on the attack ability, the weaponry of the immune system to fight bacteria, fungi, other parasites, etc. And that's termed resistance. And as I pointed out earlier, we're not sure that athlete immune resistance is really clinically immune suppressed. An immunologist who would look at, say, some of the measurements we make in, in athletes' immune cell counts function would say they're quite normal um, if, if they came to their lab, the blood samples. So that's resistance. And the concept of tolerance as used by ecology, uh, immunologists working with insects, is really about um, tolerating infection at a non-damaging level. It, it, uh, I mean, a great example of this, of course, is, is the gut bacterial population. Our immune attack weaponry does not just, you know, it's not programmed to just obliterate all of the bacteria in our gut, the grams of LPS. And the best description of this was, and I cite the paper in, in the Sports Medicine Review, was by Ayers and Schneider, beautiful paper in um, Annual Reviews of Immunology way back in 2012. They describe the immune system a bit like a fortress, and it's a beautiful um, way of doing this, a metaphor, if you like. They say that if you think about the, the fortress, the inhabitants have to build the walls. They have to repair the walls. They have their offspring, just like the immune system proliferates. They spread the wealth, the food um, and energy resources. But then what they have to do in this castle is decide whether they're going to go into battle. So they have to, as I would say, you know, they have to choose their battles wisely. And this is a great metaphor because it explains to us really why the immune system doesn't just attack. Because if you think about it, every war is going to be extremely costly. It's going to be costly in terms of the damage, the collateral damage. Just like an overly exuberant immune system can damage your tissues, it's also wasteful on energy. So there's this balance to be struck. It's not as simple exactly as you say it. It's not as simple as our teachings in Immunology 101, whereby it's just attack. There has to be this inclusion, if you like, of the microbe, which I draw in the middle of this figure, the new figure, the microbes there. And when you then look at that figure that, that I've tried to draw with all of this work from ecology in mind and, and the new learnings in human immunology, you can see that in the center of this figure is the microbe. And so on the left of that microbe, you've got the classical resistance, the killing weaponry. But you've got the two problems there where you might have immune deficiency, where the weaponry is not strong enough. And that's what we... That was the prevailing notion amongst exercise immunologists, probably for about 25 years, was that the, the weaponry wasn't strong enough in athletes under heavy training. We're now questioning that. And, and we do know, of course, that that occurs in cancer patients, etc. Um, the, the flip side of that is where you've got too strong or too exuberant an immune response. That, as I said, can damage the tissues and, of course, is wasteful on energy. And there's great work in the bumblebee that shows how costly an immune response can be to life. There's some beautiful work that they, they have energy deficient bees versus normally nourished bees. And they challenge the immune system to respond. And the energy deficient bees typically die. So this shows that the, the big cost of having an immune response. And so you need that balance and on the right of the, the of the figure what i draw is this idea of tolerance so this is about homeostasis this is about tolerating an infection at a non-threatening level and the the work in in insects and now in humans is, is pretty much supporting this because we've evolved if you think about it we it wouldn't make sense for us to evolve to just attack 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 i don't think we'd live very long um, with the damage that our immune system can can inflict but the evolution has selected for this dual stimulus to stimulate a full immune response whereby you have these molecular pathogen receptors on the bug the bacteria they're called MAMPs, if you like. And then you also have the stimuli from the damaged tissue. And you need the co-stimulation from the bug and from the damaged tissue to really switch on a full immune response. 
without that co-stimulation, you don't get the immune response. So it all kind of makes sense. And you think about other effectors like antimicrobial proteins in your saliva. They don't just damage all of your oral cavity. You know, they, they have a, a better recognition for the nasties, the pathogens. So what we've learned is that we've evolved to have a, a, a nice balance between attack and dampening. And when you start to, to, to look at it in this way, and, and this was an epiphany for me in the last year or two, I have to say, because some of the things I said in the 18 paper were, you know, I really don't agree with those now. And I don't agree with many of the nutrition reviews for immunity in athletes, where we were talking about support resistance, support resistance. I think with this new perspective, when you look through the new lens of this new figure I've drawn, you, you can see that now, in otherwise healthy athletes, why would we want to boost resistance? Why would we want to do that? When what we probably want to do is reduce the severity and duration of infectious illness. And we probably should be asking the question, not will a supplement stop the athlete get sick, getting sick, but will it reduce how sick they get? Essentially, will it improve tolerance? That's yeah. very long-winded, but I hope... No, 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 no. I, I, look, this is a, an important topic where you're challenging some long-held beliefs that we've all had. You know, it, you, you only have to walk into a sort of a, a supermarket aisle with supplements or medications and whatnot, and it's easy to think that, you know, there's a, there's a pill to, for every kind of problem. There's a potion for every kind of condition, whereas you know, what we're, what we're really talking about now is, is support rather than treat, isn't it, as such? Although, you know, there's nuances behind those terms. So this is exciting because I feel that this opens up even more potential for a well-trained and well-educated practitioner, a performance nutritionist. Uh, it clearly means that that you need a, a, a great deal of critical thinking and um, awareness of, you know, the contemporary views on this, which you've laid out in your, in your paper. But um, when it comes to this concept, I have a saying, which is you can, but should you? Um, you know, you, you've got a version of this, which is if it ain't broken, don't fix it. Same sort of concept. Given that there is a pill for every problem, so to speak, that seems to be available, what, what are the, you know, I think if we're fair, for the most part, most nutritional supplements aren't going to hurt anyone. But what, what are the consequences of, of trying to use these, these products when perhaps there isn't a problem there in the first place? What are the risks? Well, or, or in a scenario where they might actually harm training adaptations, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I meant harm the person, but I, uh, right. you, you, yes, you're absolutely right. And that, again, Professor Close, we, um, we did a whole thing about antioxidants and how that affects training adaptations, but I won't, uh, I won't go back to that because I'm sure you'll cover that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think this is now a little more nuanced. So mm. it is a little, we have oversimplified this. And, and I think a good example of that might be vitamin C, which we know obviously is antioxidant. And there might be increased oxidative stress that you want to mop up here. But to answer that quick, quickly, what I would say is that there may be a time and a place because although vitamin C supplementation may, may blunt training adaptation, that actually there might be times given that it can reduce infection reports. There's some quite good evidence in at least five or six, only five or six, but five or six studies now in, in athletes under training in military, it can reduce symptoms of infection. Now, it might be then that you recommend vitamin C supplementation at a time when you're not so worried about training adaptations, but you might, you know, it's critical that you keep them healthy, such as during long haul travel, which is high risk, for infection and during important competition but it's a little more nuanced such that you might not recommend vitamin c supplementation you know all year round for for example on yeah and it also makes me think you know there's a difference between a food-based source of vitamin c in line with our food first approach that we should all be prioritizing and the supra physiological levels of vitamin c that you get in high dose supplements. And again, the attraction to people is I'm going to take, you know, they see 
two, you know, like one gram of vitamin C and then there's a product super duper vitamin C with 10 grams and they go, right, I feel pretty crappy. I'm going to take the 10 grams because they make that assumption that more is better. And that is, is possibly where we're going wrong. Is that right? Yes, possibly. But there's also some very good work I know from Harry Hemmler's uh, group that you, that when you actually have a common cold, that to maintain cellular vitamin C levels, that we might need much more vitamin C than, than we've first thought. Mm. So there may again be, you know, in the grams of vitamin C I'm talking now, and there's quite good evidence for that. So that you, again, it's more nuanced. Yeah. And, and is related to this tolerance concept that I talked about, that when the battle is going on, you mean battle, you might actually need more of some of these supplements. Um, we're, we're venturing into the unknown, but there is quite good evidence now that during an infection, to maintain vitamin C levels in the cell, you're talking about grams of vitamin C now, upwards of four to eight grams um, during an infection. Whereas we know, for example, that, it, it, 200 milligrams of vitamin C will swamp the body's tissues with, with vitamin C. So it all depends on the circumstances, I think, Lauren. And, and then clearly the timing. So it's, it's a question of knowing, knowing your tools, the strengths and limitations of those tools and when and when not to use them. 100%. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, yeah, we'll come back to some of that then. Um, so you, 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 you talk about, so we, okay, I can see, here we're now rather than looking at resistance we're looking at tolerance and you introduce a phrase that i had never heard before um which are tolerogenic nutritional supplements love it so and we do love a sexy title in in uh, in sports science or in nutrition and so on and you've you've got one here i love it so tolerogenic nutritional supplements um talk us through what you mean by that and why you feel that we should be having these in our uh, toolbox for practice? Yeah, so I, I think that, that if you improve the right side of that figure, the drawing we talked about that shows tolerance, resistance, that if we assume that resistance isn't clinically lowered in, in athletes, which it typically isn't, and that tolerance is about managing or, or controlling infection at a non-damaging level, that also includes... Um, dampening the immune response to a challenge. It's all about balance. Then there are a number of candidates and possibly more that we haven't explored. For example, we know that vitamin D has anti-inflammatory effects. We've talked about vitamin C and others like the polyphenols, which have anti-inflammatory effects, which could dampen the immune response, which is causing the inflammation and the symptoms during an infection. And actually, when you look through this new lens, you, and you actually see there are many more positive papers, whether you think it's anybody thinks it's cherry picking or not. It's up to them to look at the papers. But there are there's more positive evidence for tolerogenic supplements, as I call them, to actually reduce the infection burden. And by that, I mean the severity of an infectious insult and the duration. And another good example of that is, is probiotics. These are the mutualistic symbionts, as they're called. We're talking about, you know, improving, increasing the bacterial population in the gut. And then that, that, that can allow a competition to happen between the probiotic bacteria and the pathogenic bacteria for, for, for residing in the gut. And, and there are also anti-inflammatory or tolerogenic effects of probiotics as well. And again, the evidence is quite compelling um, that probiotic supplementation in athletes, there's good studies on this now, and in elite athletes as well, I'm thinking um, the Australian group, Amanda Cox's work, um, way back in British Journal of Sports Medicine, where they showed no impact of probiotics on the incidence of respiratory infections, but they saw significantly shorter duration of infection and a close to significance effect on reducing the severity of an infection. The same goes for the work from Loughborough on vitamin D. They, they've supplemented vitamin D during the winter and shown shorter lasting, less severe common colds. And so maybe this changes the measurements that we make as well. And we have oversimplified that, Lauren. We've been obsessed with incidents. Does 
this supplement X or Y reduced the incidence of infection. And it's a bit naive to just put all our eggs in that basket because there are many factors that affect whether you actually get sick, exposure to people. You know, we're talking about hand hygiene, blah, blah, blah. But your immune system's then involved in clearing up the, you know, controlling the damage, the, the battle we talked about. And it's then that nutrition might have an impact. If you really think about this, um, uh, it is slightly more complicated. You're right. But I think when you look through this new lens, you see that the tolerogenic supplements that dampen the immune response, for example, actually have better results than those that are just targeted at improving the immune weaponry. Thank you for that. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of angles there, uh, and you you mentioned things like vitamin D, probiotics, etc., um, vitamin C, which um, you know I think folks can can read your paper to delve into that. I've done podcasts with on probiotics with David Pine, for example. Uh, I've actually co-authored a, a a paper that's just about to come out on probiotics and athlete health. So I'm, I'm not going to get into that because um, that's another podcast coming up. I've actually got another expert coming on shortly uh, in January, actually, um, on the microbiome and, and health with a world expert on that topic. It's absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, Graham Close again and Dan Owens, we've talked about vitamin D. Uh, I, I actually need to find someone to talk about specifically about vitamin C. So um, I might get your recommendations on that after the podcast. But but just to bring us back to something that I think is an important discussion here is that, that there are certain background prerequisites, I would suggest, um, that might have uh, an important consideration on this. Um, you know, we talked about relative energy, sorry, energy deficiency, um, but the quality of that individual's diet um, is something we should quickly get into and and uh, what so so you've already made it clear that the energy deficiency itself is not necessarily um, what we need to be looking at but the quality of that person's diet and by quality I mean you know the uh, uh, the relative amounts of say carbohydrates protein fats vitamins minerals that sort of thing what what would what is the importance of that and what are the the key areas, given that a lot of elite athletes at some point or another are going to be in an energy deficiency, and for the listeners who are not working necessarily with elite athletes per se, but they are focusing a lot on, say, physique competitors who are in continuous states of energy deficiency to bring about those body composition changes and be super lean, what, what are the areas there that we do need to be mindful of um in addition obviously to the tolerogenic supplements that you've mentioned the key thing here is that if you have a frank deficiency in macronutrient a macronutrient for example then this is a problem for the immune system we talked about protein which is key mm. so none of that changes it, it, it's important to avoid malnutrition and and so frank deficiencies can be a major problem for the immune system and that's why in my new recommendations i make it clear that the athlete needs to have a well-balanced diet that recommendation has not changed mm. and the second recommendation i make in my revised um, recommendations and i have revised them for sure is is that protein intake needs to be adequate all of the work, whether it's the instructive work from Koshia course or protein energy malnutrition, the work in mice and rats shows that protein is particularly important to maintain immune function. So there must be adequate protein intake. And I think the experts, you know, are typically talking about 1.2 to 1.7 or thereabouts grams per kilogram body mass for protein intake per day. Um, those are the key messages, I think, Lauren, for me. Excellent. Yeah, I just did. I, I didn't want us to just be focusing on uh, on supplements. Again, it's that oversimplification that people will do, even from listening to our podcast, they might be left with with with, you know, right, okay, I'm, I, I've got some new perspectives on supporting tolerance, I'm going to add those to my toolbox, which we absolutely are encouraging them to do. But they do need to be 
particularly aware of of those factors you've just mentioned, which I think is is great. So look, we uh, we've been talking for uh, over an hour now about this stuff, um, which is absolutely fascinating. Uh, I think this is an emerging area that you're spearheading this sort of new theoretical perspective, um, which is super exciting, particularly for us as performance nutrition practitioners. Maybe then let's just finish up here with um, some sort of conclusion then. Uh, not quite a tweetable summary, um, but you know what I mean. You know, where, what, what are your conclusions on this topic for, for the listeners? Yeah, I, I, I think that what we just spoke about is important, that we, we, we need to avoid frank deficiencies in athletes. And we need athletes to have a well-balanced diet. But with this new model of resistance and tolerance, we're, we're quite confident that immune resistance, the weaponry, is not clinically suppressed in, in athletes who are otherwise healthy. And that the focus for me should be on tolerogenic nutrients and supplements to uh, you know, in, improve the balance between resistance and tolerance and reduce the infection burden. By that, I mean you might have a tolerogenic supplement to, to reduce uh, an aggressive immune response during an infection, an overly exuberant immune response. This can then dampen the immune response and, and reduce the severity and duration uh, of an infection. But the key thing to remember is even though we might now have a search for tolerogenic supplements that dampen this overly excessive immune response, is that we mustn't be pushing forward supplements that blunt training adaptations and reduce performance. And we also must check they don't have side effects as, as well. That's very, very important. Yeah. And obviously it's, it's uh, with, with um, the athlete population, you know, there's, there's the whole need for um, products that are not likely to be contaminated or doping risks and so on and so forth. Um, wow. Okay. So what a fantastic chat we've just had, Neil. Um, I, I know that I can't wait to re-listen to this podcast. I definitely recommend folks listen to our um, podcast uh, from a few years ago, which I think was uh, in many ways complimentary, as long as they get the, uh, the, the, the order of the podcast in the right direction, because you definitely have changed some of your views and perspective. But isn't that the great thing about this? It's such a fluid field that we're in. And and, and, and it's quite possible that in, in another three or four years, you're going to have a completely new view on some of this. Maybe you will or won't. But, um, you know, sharing all this information and all the outputs that you put. I mean, these, are, these papers um, I will, you know, attach to the notes on this. Um, if people want to follow you and your work, um, I always like to plug your social media, etc. How do people uh, follow you? It's Prof Neil Walsh on Twitter, and then it's just uh, N. Walsh at LJMU. Brilliant. Yeah, and I'll 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 make sure everyone has uh, links to all of this also, and um, you can find information about this episode and all the other ones that we've talked about under the podcast section at theiopn.com. T h e i o p n dot com. The i o p n. Um, thank you so much, Neil. It's been awesome. I look forward to having another chat with you in the near future, and I'll see you at the ISEN conference. Obviously. Thank you for having me. Thank you. For um, me. I, of course, am Lauren Bannock. I look forward to bringing another podcast back to you all very soon. Thanks, Lauren. <laughs>